and by the Spirit. Amen. If you have a Bible, we'd like to turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. As I said in the Pill Bible, it's on 272. 1 Samuel 5. Now we're continuing our study of 1 Samuel. If you were here two weeks ago, uh, you would have heard a little bit more and the time before, uh, a month or so before, uh, again on chapter 4. And I must confess that it was quite heavy last time. There's a significance about the word heavy. We'll come to it in a minute. It was quite heavy as we thought about the ark of God being captured and uh, the glory of God departing from Israel and the application was to us, ourselves personally, maybe to the fellowship or fellowships wherever. So it was heavy going, uh, and I found it very challenging, and I was doing the preaching. Um, but this morning, as we come to chapter 5, I'm hoping that you'll say, wow, wasn't that great? Not because I'm saying it, but because it's there, written down for us. And it's fairly simple stuff, all right? There are very, lots of... Um, possibly complicated applications, right? But we'll have to deal with those. But the, the story itself, the narrative itself, is fairly plain. Now, my fellow elder, dear Gary, he said the other day that he didn't like the word story because some people associated it with fairy stories. Well, that's quite true. This is a story, but if you prefer, the narrative, because it is true and it's not a fairy story. It's historical, geographical, it actually happened. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story. The other problem I've got this morning is that it's dramatic. Now, some of you will say, well, that'll suit you, won't it? I know, I know, all right? But my temptation is to be overdramatic. But if you can't get dramatic about this, I think there's something wrong with you. I honestly do. People get excited about all kinds of things. I've got a neighbour yesterday who went to Manchester. Why would a neighbour of mine go all the way from Manchester, from Eastbourne to Manchester? Well, some of you know the answer to that because um, little fella there smiling over his little face, right? Because Brighton and Hove were playing Manchester United. And uh, Manchester, Brighton and Hove won 3-1, so he came back with his little face smiling over man. He got excited about a couple of men bashing a ball around a bag of wind and it's not even over-shaped. Anyway, so get excited, because this is about God. This is about God. So here's, here's the title, okay? Wait for it. God doesn't need us to fulfill his purposes. Let me say it again. God doesn't need us to fulfill his purposes. Now, I have to add to that very quickly, but... God sometimes is pleased to use us to fulfill his purposes. Have you got that? On one hand, God doesn't need us. On the other hand, God is pleased to use us to fulfill his purposes. Now, we'll really be concentrated on the first part this morning, but I want to say the second part because there will be some will say, Wow, Colin, you've gone really over the top there, and you've so stressed this God-only business that, you know, does that mean that I can sit back? Does it mean I don't have to pray? Does it mean I don't have to evangelize? And there are some people that do that. 
That's what they believe. They say, yes, God is sovereign, he's almighty, he, he does everything according to his own purposes and will, and really, we do very little. We don't have to get involved or do much. We don't really have to pray. We don't have to evangelize, because God will see to it all that. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches God's sovereignty. We stand four square on that in Gordon Road. But the Bible also speaks of our responsibility. The Bible also speaks about our accountability. Some say, well, how would you bring those together? How would you marry them up? I don't. I just believe that's what the Bible says, and that's good enough for me. So be aware of that, although we won't be touching much on it, that second part, but God forbid that anybody should make it an excuse for laziness, prayerlessness, coldness, lukewarmness, and lovelessness, as we looked at last week. Okay. Now, if you're not familiar with 1 Samuel 4, then very briefly, because we've done it twice already, uh, very briefly, let me remind you, for those who have not been here um, previously or in the last couple of months. 1 Samuel 4 is about a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. They're always battling, fighting, all right? And uh, the Israelites are in a bad place. They're not acknowledging God. They're disobedient. The priests are, are a terrible bunch of lads. Um, and poor old Eli, he's dad, and he's not, anyway, he's not so good. Um, and there's this battle, and Israel are losing, and they, what can we do? What they should have done is gone in repentance to God and said, Lord, we're sorry, we've disobeyed, we've disobeyed, have mercy upon us and help us defeat our enemies. Did they do that? No. They said, we've got the Ark of the Covenant, it's a special little box, special little chest, if you like, very special, it symbolized God's presence. And they said, we'll get the Ark and we put it in the midst of the battle and then God will do something. For his own honor, his own glory, God will do something and we'll be the victors, praise the Lord. So that's what they do. They get the ark, they go in the midst of the battle, the Philistines hear about it, they're in a terrible state. There's a God in the midst of the battle. What can we do? And instead of fighting them and sending them running off, they say, well, let's do our best, boys, you know. Let's go to Manchester, see what we can happen, right? And they smash the Israelites and they capture the ark. You can't play with God. You can't treat him as some token. Like somebody have on their neck or on their whatever, and they go across themselves and they kiss the little thing and everything. And it's, it's paganism, superstition. That's what it was. And that's what it was there. So God allowed them. God allowed the Philistines to capture the ark and take it away. So that's where we left it. And the other thing that uh, you need to know is that when um, the, they heard uh, back at home in Israel about the ark being captured. Um, the daughter of one of the priests, the daughter-in-law of Eli, uh, she died and gave childbirth and the baby was called Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory of God has departed. So here's the situation. This ark has been captured by the Philistines and Israel in a terrible state. Now, What's going to happen to this ark? Well, are the Israelites going to get an SAS gang together and secretly go in and capture it, recapture it, and bring it home? Are they going to do something about it? Are they concerned about it? Well, they may be concerned about it, but they're certainly not going to do anything about it. So, what's going to happen to this ark? 
God Almighty. That's what happens to this ark. God doesn't need us. So what does God do? Well, it's just amazing. Let's, let's look carefully. The words and sometimes the phrases and sometimes the actual words are important. And the Philistines took the ark of God. All right? So they pick it up and they carry it off. Verse 2, when the Philistines took the ark of God. All right? So they're in charge. They've got this, we call it a box now, inverted commas. We've got this little crate, this box. So they pick it up, take it, they pick it up and take it, and they bring it from Ebenezer, where it was in the middle of the battle, to Ashdod, one of their cities. And not only have they brought it into the city, we're told they brought it into the house of Dagon. Now, you need to know very brief, briefly a little bit about Dagon. Dagon was one of the Philistines' gods. If you look this up, you could do it like on Google or whatever, Bible Dictionary, various um, descriptions of Dagon. Um, most think he was a fish god, right? Half man, half fish, maybe. All right? Uh, remember, this is on the coast. If you, if you, can't, if you can picture... Um, uh, Israel, you've got kind of Jerusalem here, and across to the to the west, you've got the Mediterranean as we know it now. And these these cities, these five cities of the Philistines, are on the coastline there, from going down that way. So it's a coastal area, presumably um, dependent on fishing and shipping and so on. And you can understand why they may have a god of the fish or a fish god. And if that was so, they would go out in the morning on their boats, but before they went, they would sacrifice to Dagon and say, give us a good day and, and give us lots of fish. And off they would go. If they came back with a fish load, a shipload of fish, right, they'd come and worship Dagon. Thanks, Dagon. Good lad. All right. And so on. If nothing happened, they'd go and apologize and they'd sacrifice something or someone to Dagon so they might have a better catch next time. So that's the, that's the kind of, you need to get that in your mind because it's important. Others think perhaps he wasn't just a god of the fish, or fish god, he was a god of grain, right? They began to move perhaps uh, eastward, and, and they started growing crops, and so they weren't dependent totally on the fish, and grain, and corn, all the rest of it. So he was um, possibly the god of grain, something like that. And others think that apart from the fish and the grain, he was the god of fertility. Now, I mention that because it's important, I think, in a minute. So he's the god of fertility. So if you've got a cow or cows uh, that are going to bear calves, then you offer sacrifices to Dagon. If you've got sheep uh, and they're with a lamb, offer a sacrifice to Dagon. If you've got a wife or wives who are pregnant, offer a sacrifice to Dagon. That all will go well in the fertility area. Okay. So this god is well thought of amongst the Philistines. God of the fish, God of the grain, God of fertility, he's Dagon, right? He's the one. If you know your Bibles, you will remember that in Judges, uh, the last mention of Dagon uh, before Samuel, um, Samson, Samson ended his days in the house or whatever it was of Dagon. You remember he's there, he's lost his strength, the Lord has forsaken him, and he's there and he's been, his, his eyes have been burnt out, and he's there, they make fun of him between two pillars, and he asks the Lord for mercy, pushes the pillars, they're all up there in, in, in the gods, in the gods, in the galleries, right, and crash down and thousands are killed, including Samuel. 
but that was Dagon back in one in uh, Judges. So here he is again. Right? So he's got this temple, and it would have been a wonderful place, and they've got this great statue of Dagon. So they bring it in to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, you might say, well, why don't they just burn the box? Right? They've captured the ark. I remember when they're thinking now, they've captured God. They've captured the God of Israel. Now, I will refer to him, as the Bible does, L-O-R-D, capitals, as Yahweh. Right? So you've got Yahweh and Dagon. So why don't they just burn the box? Well, no, because this symbolizes Dagon's power over Yahweh. Right? Here they've got Yahweh in a box, and he's there, and he's been def- his armies have been defeated, and he, in, in effect, has been defeated. He, he hasn't got so much power as Dagon, this great big statue there, whatever it is like, half man, half possibly. All right? he's, before, he's before Dagon, and Dagon is looking down as if he's smiling, saying, yeah, I'm the one, I'm, oh, I'm the boy, I'm the daddy, all right? And possibly... I suspect that come, uh, if it was on a, on a Friday or Saturday, come on Monday, they're going to be selling tickets. You know what people are like. Something famous, they've dug it up, you know, it's 3,000 years old, and you've got to come see it, right? You've got to go to the British Museum uh, and see this stuff. Actually, there is a museum in Oxford that's got an old stone thing that talks about Dagon. Fact, fact, you couldn't see it. And you pay a couple of pennies, of course, or put it in the box. Oh, so they're going to have a big thing, right? All uh, Garth, all uh, Ashton, all the other places, they've got to come visit our Dagon and see what Dagon has done to Yahweh. Dagon won, Yahweh nil. Wait for it. Right, it's all set. Now see this. Try and enter into this. See this. So come the next day, off they go. And we say, and, and it's just, just said simply in the writer, and when they have Ashdod rose early, went early, of course, to celebrate this great victory, Dagon, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. That's all it says. So, you've got this statue, all right? Great big statue, presumably, and it's, wait for it, And it's description. I love it. On its face, boom. On the earth, boom. Before the ark. Before the ark of the Lord. Right? Right? Now, in verse 1, the ark of God. Verse 2, the ark of God. Verse 3, the ark of Yahweh. You see that? It's Yahweh. It's the covenant God. Jehovah, I am that I am. This is he's on the face and the earth before Yahweh. Oh dear. Oh dear dear. Dagon won. Yahweh won. And I would have to see this. I know I've got a bit of a weird mind, right? I admit that. I admit that. Right? But can you see this now? And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Right? right? Listen, listen now. So there he is on the floor. He's a great God. One of a God. Alas, he can't get up. Poor old fella. He's on the floor. Now, I know I've been there, right? 
please help me. If you see me falling down, please help me. Don't leave me there. He hasn't got the power to get back up. But of course he hasn't. He's a statue. He's an idol. He's nothing. So they set him up again. Now, I'd love to be on, listen to the conversation. I wonder what's happened. How is he down there? Now, I'm, I don't know, right? You can surmise as best, as, as good as I can. I wonder if there's been an earthquake, earth shimmer. It could be. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it was strange if the earthquake moved this statue plop and didn't move the ark. Still where it was. They had lots of discussions. Well, whatever it was, it was a freak accident, right? It doesn't matter. We'll put him back up, and he'll be okay. As I thought about this, I thought, you know, this poor old Deacon was a burden to them, and he couldn't help them. Who'd want to put their burdens on a God who couldn't help himself? Would you want that? Would you want that? Would you want to go to someone uh, who you felt w- would be of great help to you, and, and when you went there and, and you talked to them, whatever it would be, it, it could be a doctor, it could be a mechanic, it could be a gardener, it could be anybody, and he went to them and thought, you don't know what you're talking about. Look at you. You're, you're a wreck. How can you help me? I want somebody who can bear my burdens. What good is a God who has fallen down and can't get up? Is he any help to you? Of course he's not any help to you. He cannot help anybody. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee, says the psalmist. God is able. Hallelujah. Okay, so you back up now, okay? Verse 4, And when they arose early in the morning, back they go, Behold, 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 Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground with the ark of the Lord, Jehovah, uh, Yahweh, and this time the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off. So his head now is on the floor, his palms of his hands also on the floor. Right? Poor old Dagon. No head, no hands. Well, of course. You've got no head, you've got no understanding, you've got no will, no mind, no intelligence. It's just a head. His palms, his hands, what good are they? They can't do anything, they can't work, they can't help, they can't comfort. Dead head, dead hands. Now, <laughs> you have to forgive me for this, but I must tell you, because I just laughed in the car, came over. Some say that it says here, the, the stump of Dagon was left, only the stump. Right, that's all that's left him, and that's not good anyway. Now, if it was, and I've seen some pictures of this, if it was, as some say, a a um, fish god, right, and he was half fish, half man, some say that, and so the man bit of him, the head and the palms, has crashed, and all that's left is a fish tail. I thought, well. He's no god, he's just cod. <laughs> he's a cod tail. Why would you want to worship a cod tail? 
we all enjoy fish and chips, but you don't worship it, I hope. You have this lovely plate, plate of fish and chips and bow down, I worship you, I worship you, I'm going to eat you, but I worship you. I'm going to Come on. That's all he is. He's a fish tail. Now, do you see why I read Psalm 115? Because there the psalmist says this, the idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they don't see. Ears they don't hear. Noses they don't smell. Hands they don't handle. They neither speak. No one trusts in them. Why would you trust in that kind of God who's hopeless and useless? Yahweh 2, Dagon 1. Match over. Well, not quite, because there's extra time. Wait for it. We need to remember our God doesn't actually need us. He's quite capable of looking after himself and his honor and his glory. And he will do what he will do and what his purpose to do. He will carry it out. And nothing and nobody in heaven or hell or on earth can stop him. Our God is unstoppable. He will do what he will do. Hallelujah. He's not digging. He speaks, he hears, he sees, he does, he acts. That's our God. That's our God. And this, I say, ought to thrill you. Because sometimes these days we can get disheartened. And sometimes, you know, I think some dear folk, and I don't doubt their sincerity, and I don't doubt their godliness, but sometimes they use language which to me is, oh, please don't say that. For example, dear man in the pulpit, not this pulpit, he says, Lord... We give you permission to do this and do that and so on. Lord, we will allow you to do this. I said, pardon? Pardon? You are giving the Almighty permission to do this, that, and the other? Since when did God Almighty, the eternal God, the everlasting God, need your permission or mine to do it once? How dare they say that? We give you permission. Give you permission. We let you do this. What? Here's this lump of clay on the potter's wheel. Mouldy bit of clay. And the potter comes in, knocks at the clay, and the clay says, Excuse me, I'd like to be made a nice vase. Or vase, if you prefer. I'd like to make, be made a nice vase. Nice slender vase, nice little handles, and painted carefully. Uh, would you mind doing that? And this potter looks at this bit of and says, Well, I could do that. I'm not going to. What's the point? And just be for show. I'm going to take this lump of clay and I'm going to fashion it and make it to be small little bowls into which some poor person could put a bit of oil and a little wick and have a little light and it would be a blessing and useful. I remember a friend of mine, I think she's from the Midlands, had a phrase they use up there. I, it may be in Sussex, I've not heard it. He's neither a use nor ornament. Are you familiar with that? 
They use neither use nor omit. Some people don't know the difference, and some people are. And anyway, neither use nor ornament. It doesn't look good, and it's no use to anybody. Don't be like that. Be useful to God. Even if you're a little cracked pot with a bit of oil and a little light, and that's all you are, a little light, inhale, be a little light. Don't be a blob of clay of no use to anyone. We are the clay, he is the potter. He will do as he wills. Right, let's come back then, finally, to the what happens next. So, verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod. God has vindicated his honor and glory, right? He's destroyed Dagon. So, okay, that's fine. But there are consequences that will now come upon the Philistines who dared to capture the ark, who dared to attack his people, who dared to be idolaters and all that went with it, some wicked, terrible things that they did. With all that, now God is going to say, right, right, let's start exiting a bit of justice here and let's start exiting a bit of judgment here. And so we have, and the hand of the Lord was heavy, upon them of Ashton. Now, if you'd been here previously, you will know that we made a little bit of this because the word heavy is kabod. And it's the same word in Hebrew for glory. And you might say, well, that's a strange word to talk about the glory of God, the heaviness of God. Well, it's got this sense of weightiness. Now, we, we, we use that today, don't we? We talk, we talk about somebody who um, is, is very good at discussing things or very strong in, in their arguments. They have a weighty opinions or a weighty argument. You might talk about a book. That's a, uh, it's, a, it's not a light read. It's a heavy read. We don't mean literally it's heavy to pick up, all right, or put down. We mean that it, there's substance to it. And this is the word that's used in the Bible, this word for heavy, for glory, and literally for that which is heavy. And when you think of the glory of God departing, Ichabod, right? Kabod, the glory of God, the, the heaviness of God, the weight of God has gone, and we're left lightweight. God forbid that we personally, we as a fellowship, should be lightweight. Now, I'm not equating uh, heaviness with very serious, somber, you know, that's heavy. No, it might not be. It might just be legalism or traditionalism. But here's the word again, heavy. God is heavy. The glory of God is heavy upon them, uh, not in a blessing sense, but in a judgmental sense. God is going to judge these people and judge them severely. He's going to bring diseases upon them. And we're told in verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with hemorrhoids, um, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. God visits people with judgment because he's God and because he can. Now, this whole question of judgment is difficult. There are a lot of terrible things going on in the world at the moment. Lots of terrible things. Some people, I remember somebody being asked, a clerical person in high authority somewhere or other in England, and somebody asked me for some terrible calamity or tragedy, and where was God when this happened? And he said, oh, it's nothing to do with God. God has nothing to do with this. 
excuse me, God has everything to do with everything. Now, I'm not saying God just arbitrarily caused something, all right? I'm careful in my words. Big issue, I'm not going to talk about it, big issue, climate change. Who's in charge of climate? God. The God who created us continues in his providence, common grace, to provide a climate. He gives the rain to the just and the unjust. He brings the sunshine to the righteous and the unrighteous. God is in control of the climate. Now, he may do what he may do, all right? And I'm not saying every, everything climatically that happens that's horrendous is an aspect of God's judgment. I'm not saying that. But it did happen in the Bible like that. One of the greatest judgments of God was the flood. Men's hearts being wicked continuously. You read those verses in Genesis. The, the terrible description of humanity. And God got to a stage and said, enough is enough. I'm just going to wipe you all out. And start again with eight. So, be careful when you talk about judgment. Nevertheless, we have to say that God will judge. I was thinking of, I'm trying to get, trying to get to some examples. You've got to be careful with examples because someone say, well, I know, or, well, that didn't happen to me, or whatever. Some simple ones, and they're not nice. Let me warn you, heads up and all that stuff. They're not nice. I've got a granddaughter. Well, actually, she's my grandson's wife. And she's pregnant. And there are complications. Now, in the wonders of medicine, and there are wonders, God, in his common grace, gives people amazing ability. And they can perform surgery and the unborn baby in the womb. You've you read about that, right? That's amazing. How can they do that? But they can. They enter, and they can all this. What? No, that's amazing. And that's wonderful. Praise God for that. We hope she won't need that, and, and it'll be treated otherwise. But how amazing is that? Well, let me take you to a street in Harley, Harley Street in London. There's a clinic there. Supposedly family planning. It's an abortion clinic. You book in, go in, give your name, um, why you do one body, oh, blah, 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 okay. Almost on demand, almost on demand. Have, have it, is it less than an hour, I think? How do you go? Go and have a coffee somewhere? 250,000 babies a year, just wiped out. The medical profession can do such wonderful things, can also do some horrendous things. And don't get me started on doctors who can cut bits off and add bits on and, and change creation. That's a bad business. And God will judge the medical world. Don't ask me how, but he will judge. Same in the education world. Thank God for education. Thank God for those who've got a brain and can think and can write and can speak about these, these great things of our world. And a lot of educational establishments like the universities were, were started by Christian people way back when. That's a Christian emphasis. Nowadays, they're bending over backwards to give in to extremists, sometimes the students. Who's in charge of these universities? Is it the students? Are they in charge? Well... They, they bring the money in, don't they? We've got to be careful, you know. 
and uh, this poor woman was hounded out in, in locally, Sussex, Brighton University, was it? Because she was, wasn't pro, pro-trans business. She was, she, she was sensible and educated, and pff, out she came. Out they forced her. I wonder what God is going to do with the educational system. It's in chaos. Some folk who are in, involved tell me it's chaos. And one of the saddest things, I speak as a father, I speak as a grandfather, great-grandfather, the number of kiddies that have problems. Now, back in the day, it was the teenagers. Those who had children and teenagers, you know, I was a teenager once. Have mercy upon me. All right? But I remember what we were like. But now the kiddies under 10 are in a terrible state. And increasingly, the problems with kiddies under 10 from all kinds of reasons, homes, back on. God is going to judge. Now, I'm not a prophet. But as I read my Bible, I read Romans 1, and it says there about people changing that which is of God to the image of man and changing things that have God to, to, to abominable things. That's the language of the Bible, abominable. And Paul says, and God gave them over, and God gave them up. It's as if God said, listen, that's what you want. Have it, and have it in abundance. And that's what's happening to the UK. Now, dare I be indelicate? Well, I won't be indelicate, but I'll just tell you what the Bible says, and then you can argue with the Bible if you want to, but not with me. All right? So, there's a strange little verse in verse 9. All right? So let me read it to you. And uh, This is obviously the authorised version. And it was, it was so that after they had carried... It's about they decided to carry the ark somewhere else. The hand of the Lord was great against the people and a very great destruction, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. Now, that's what the AV says. Most other versions don't have secret parts, as in what we've got it here, but it's, as far as I can see, it's in the Hebrew. And I think, no, Colin, go carefully. I will go carefully. But it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, it's been written for a purpose. Do you remember what I said about Dagon? Fish, grain, and fertility. Remember that? Here's Dagon, this great god of fertility. You want lots of babies? Come and see me. You want lots of cows and calves? Come and see me. You want lots of arms? Come and see me. I am the god of fertility. Yahweh says, hmm? Hmm? He's not only smashes Dagon. He hits them where it hurts, literally, infertility. That's what the Bible says. God will deal with people. Great minds, alas, become confused. Great people go do strange things towards the end. God will be avenged. God will carry out his purposes. God will have glory ultimately. Don't mess with this God. Our God doesn't need us. But thankfully, and I'll close with this, he's pleased to use us. And this God, you know, he's got the ability to turn the wrath 
of man to his praise. The supreme example of this must be the cross. The wickedest thing that was ever done was by a man called Judas who betrayed his Lord with a kiss and uh, for money and betrayed him and gave him over to the authorities and the Lord was arrested. Now, there are some weird folk out there who reason like this. Well, this was part of the plan and purpose of God, and Judas was a part of this plan, obviously, and therefore he had no choice to do uh, to, uh, in what he did, so he did what he did, because that was God's plan, and that was the end of it. That's not what the Bible says. Stick to the Bible, not philosophy. It's not theology, it's philosophy. Judas chose to betray Jesus. He did it for money. He was a wicked man, Satan in his heart. He is responsible and accountable. He is a great sinner. But God Almighty will use that and turn that upside down and out of that worst crime ever will bring glory and praise to his name in that that death of his son will provide redemption and salvation and forgiveness of sins and heaven for all his people for eternity. Isn't that amazing? The worst thing in the world that man has done to Jesus, crucified him, beat him, bashed him, terrible things, tortured him. God uses it to bring salvation to his people. So when the Lord suffers, the full wrath and anger of God is poured on his own son. Not because he deserved anything like that. He deserved eternal love and blessing and all the blessings of heaven. That's what he deserved. But willingly he takes the place of sinners and willingly he says, Father, Punish me instead of them. I will be their substitute. Take it out of me. And he did. And that's why Jesus cries, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Blessed be his name. Bear in shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And he commands us, therefore, to come to him and to repent and believe. And when we've done so, and having done so, what do we do next? We don't sit in our chairs or in our pews or whatever and say, well, the Lord will save now whom he wills. He will. But the last words of Jesus were go. Don't stay, go. Go into all the world. That's our responsibility. And if the world means Hashem, Hashem, then that's where you're to go and preach the gospel, to witness, to live before the people of, of Hashem. If it's Ishbon, if it's whatever it is, you're told to go. You're told to witness. You're told to live. You're told to pray. Pray. Paul Great theology. You can read it in the epistles. I was reading Philippians this morning where he talks about pray for me and pray for this and pray for that. Oh, Paul, we don't pray for people in our church. 
No, no, we, we believe in God's sovereignty. Yes, God is great and God will do it. Well, says Paul, where do you get that from then? Well, we read it in, in some letter, some devote, was it Ephesians or some, so somebody called Paul? Read it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that book, says Paul. Yeah, I read that. I wrote that. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh. Don't you dare say that. You get and pray. You get and plead. You get and cry unto God. Because that's what the Bible says. And who knows, who knows that God yet in wrath will remember mercy. But don't forget, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But, oh, hallelujah, but he's pleased to use us. Do you want to be used? Do you really want to be used? Is that your concern tomorrow? Lord, I don't know. I know Colin said about being used. I don't know how I can be used. I'm just an ordinary little bloke, ordinary little lady. I don't know what I can do. But if you can use this little bit of lump of clay, it's a bit cracked and a bit weird. If you can use this little pot, then use it. Use me to your glory. Make me a blessing. Oh, please, Father, make me a blessing. You seek God. God will hear you. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We confess it's, it's challenging, but we rejoice that it's a great word, that God doesn't need us, and yet he is pleased to use us. And we want to acknowledge both those things. We want to acknowledge that you are sovereign, and you will do as you want to do and fulfill your purposes, and ultimately your plan will be fulfilled. Meanwhile, May it please you to use, even such as we, even such as me, be pleased to use us in the kingdom for your glory, to tell other people about Jesus, to bring them to faith, humanly speaking. Oh, Lord, do a work, do a work, oh, Lord, that only you can, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Let's sing the last hymn, which is a good old hymn and a good old tune. Um, Number 97, number 97, the Lord Jehovah reigns, his throne is built on high, the garments he assumes are light and majesty, his glory shine with beams so bright, no mortal eye can bear the sight, number 97.
reigns. Hallelujah. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rest and abide with God's people here and everywhere until we meet again and then forevermore. Amen.